Our passage of Scripture today is found in the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And we'll use that as a unison reading, so please turn in your ESV Bible or find it in your bulletin insert. You know, in, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, we see those words of Jesus talking about the blood of the covenant. And maybe sometimes that's kind of foreign sounding to us. This, of course, you know, he's speaking in Old Testament terms. And one of the things that the book of Hebrews does really well is to condense the teaching of the Old Testament and bring it all the way up to date in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And so we have before us today not the easiest passage in the world, but a passage that deals uh, with uh, this issue of, of Jesus' blood of the covenant. So we'll begin to read together at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I want you to think back to the last time that you were angry with someone because of how they treated you or maybe it was you were disappointed in them because of something they said 
or something they did. You know, we all have those kinds of disagreements from time to time with those we love. It may be with a spouse. It may be with one of our parents. It might be with a brother or a sister or with a close friend or a co-worker. Someone with whom we've had this, this miscommunication or this disagreement or this outright argument. And if you're like me, there's this feeling... In the pit of your stomach, I mean, right at the beginning, there's anger, of course, or or, or a great feeling of disappointment, but then there's this kind of feeling in the pit of your stomach and this cloud that sort of hangs over you until you can get uh, that relationship problem resolved. And how do we repair one of these misunderstandings when someone else has hurt us. How are we taught in Scripture to do that? You know, Jesus makes it pretty clear in Matthew 18 when he tells us something very difficult to do. He says there, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now notice what Jesus does not say. He does not tell us to go and complain to other people about how we were mistreated by this family member or this friend. Nor does he tell us to fuss and fume about it until they finally get the right gumption and come and apologize to us. No, Jesus puts it back on the one who has been harmed. He puts the initiative on us, the one who has been hurt when he says, go and tell your brother his fault between you and him alone. Have you ever wondered why Jesus asks us to do that? I think it's because it makes us more like God. I mean, think about how humanity has always failed God. Humanity has always sinned against God from the very beginning. Adam and Eve disobeyed Him. And then the children of Israel came along, this group of people that God really wanted to have a special relationship with, so much so that He made a covenant with them and made them all of these promises. And what did they do? They didn't listen. They didn't abide by the covenant. They wanted to do their own thing over and over again and they still wanted God to to bless them with showers of blessings but that's not the nature of His covenant. And yet in the midst of their sin against Him, what does God do? He continues to come to them. He continues to speak to them. He continues to talk to them and tell them how they've wronged him. And I think that's one of the things that we see being taught, not the only one, in the first verse of the first chapter of this book of Hebrews, where we find those famous words, in many and various ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by son. God continued 
to come to his people by the prophets, yes, giving them comfort, yes, giving them hope, yes, giving them good news, but also telling them, you've wronged me by doing thus and so. Of course, he said it pretty forcefully at times. Think of Isaiah 1 as an example. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Now that's definitely bad news. But we're not here to proclaim bad news on this worldwide communion Sunday. Rather, we're here to proclaim good news, and this Hebrews 9 passage is full of good news precisely because of the work of Jesus Christ and how He's not only the mediator of a better covenant, which is a point that this writer makes many times through uh, this book that really is a sermon, we might say, but He's also the Savior of sinners. You see, this is what God has spoken by His Son. He shows His love for us, God does, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, as Paul puts it in Romans 5.8. And those words, we need to notice what Paul's really saying there. Yes, God shows His love, and that's important, but God shows His love for us. It's for us. And those words for us are so important that we see them in Scripture over and over again. But as we can also see quite often, this work of Jesus for us, this work on our behalf, is tied to blood. It's tied to blood in both the Old and the New Testaments. We see that truth over and over again. In fact, did you notice in the first verse of our passage today that is mentioned? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared, he took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, if you go back and read about all of that in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, you know, as he states it here, that no people were sacrificed. It was all the blood of animals, animals that stood in the place of the guilty people. The people were the ones who broke the covenant. God's people, the children of Israel, were the ones who were constantly and consistently breaking His commands, His statutes, and His ordinances, but they didn't have to pay the price. A substitute did. This is simply a sign of what is to come in God's gift of salvation. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. If we were to summarize in simple terms what is going on here in the latter part of chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, we could say that the idea of blood is tied to three basic concepts. Blood is tied to the covenant, blood is tied to the forgiveness, 
and blood is tied to the gift of salvation. That's what our author is talking about. For the covenant to be confirmed, we read here that a death had to occur to provide the blood needed for the ratification of that covenant. That's why our writer speaks of a will just a couple of verses before our text. He's making the point that, that you and I, we may have a will for years. I know I've had one personally for over 30 years. But the will doesn't go into effect until the death of the one who made the will. The covenant is much the same way. And, and Chuck Swindoll, in one of his books, has a good way of talking about this when he writes, in order to settle sin's sprawling estate, Jesus Christ had to die. And we are the beneficiaries of his death. We are the beneficiaries of his covenant. We are the beneficiaries of his will because... In the Hebrew, covenant and will are the same word. And we can see what we inherit right here in our text. Part of our inheritance is forgiveness of our sins. Reminding us of Leviticus 17.11, our writer says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus states the same truth or principle on that night with his disciples in the upper room when he takes the cup in his hand and he says, this is my blood of the covenant given for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in this scriptural truth, we can see that sin is a terribly horrible thing in God's sight. Sin is something so bad that there must be some costly payment made for it. Blood must be shed. In other words, a death must occur. It not only tells us that sin is a terrible thing which demands payment, but it also shows us at the same time that forgiveness is costly. That's a very costly gift. It's not just some free commodity we can pick up anywhere we choose. At Camp Joy, which many of our congregation participate in from time to time at our denominational assembly grounds, they sing a song up there that, that has these words. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owe a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Our holy God, you see, just can't sweep sin into the corner and forget about it. He can't abide being in the presence of of sin, and so something must be done about it. This is why our text has that interesting line about the heavenly things being purified by Jesus. You know, when we read that, our first thought is does that mean that the things in heaven weren't pure? I mean, up where God is residing is, 
Is that what our writer means? That's not his point. The point is that just like the tabernacle of ancient Israel had to be purified by sacrificial blood because of its association with sinful people, you know, the children of Israel were always... uh, putting that tin up and taking it down and handling all the aspects of it, well, just like that ancient tent had to be purified because of sinful people, this heavenly tabernacle, which our writer uh, is referring to heaven in his mind in those terms, this heavenly tabernacle was made accessible to the people of God, to you and me, by Jesus' death. His death provides forgiveness. And forgiveness, which is ultimately God looking at us through the righteousness of Christ, that forgiveness provides access to God. Yes, God exalted Jesus to His right hand, but that exaltation of Jesus Christ paves the way for you and me to be in God's presence as well. And Obviously, that's good news. Finally, we can see that blood is related not just to the covenant and not just to forgiveness, but also to God's gift of salvation. If you look at the latter part of verse 26, we read a while ago, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Jesus made one sacrifice. He died one time on the cross. Our author emphasizes this point because the priests of the first covenant had to make their sacrifices over and over again. In fact, their work was never done. You know, Philip and I have chairs up here because every now and then we get to sit down and actually rest during worship. Did you know there weren't any chairs in the tabernacle? There weren't any chairs in the temple. The priests always stood to serve because their work was never finished. It was never done. That's why Jesus on the cross calls out, It is finished. Our good news here is that just as Jesus came to this earth to make His once and for all perfect sacrifice, He will return again, not to deal with sin because He's already dealt with sin. He dealt with it at the cross and through the resurrection, the power of God that raised Him on the third day. Rather, He will return to save those who are eagerly, that is with faith, and anticipation waiting for Him. You see, because of the perfectness of Christ's sacrifice, His blood is able to reach all the way back to the time of creation and all the way forward at the same time to the consummation of the ages, fully cleansing and saving the people of God in all times and all centuries. And that, too, is the good news of the gospel. 
Now, we began this morning by talking about God's initiative and how He has spoken to us, how He's reached out to us through a great cost of the gift, the sacrifice of His own Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he loves us and wants a warm and close relationship with us and He proves that He loves us every single time we look at the cross. Just like He proves He loves us every single time we look at this table that He's prepared. Every single time we participate in this sacrament, we see the fact that God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, not deserving His love, Christ died for us. If you're ever going through some time in your life that's so terrible that you begin to question God's love for you, that's all you have to do is to look at the cross. And remember, that's all you have to do is to think about this table where Jesus talks about how His body is broken for you and His blood is poured out for you and your sins and the sins of the world. The question is, are we eagerly waiting for His return? Our writer tells us He will return one day, not to deal with sin because that's already accomplished. He'll return to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Do we long for His embrace? Do we look forward to that heavenly banquet table where we no longer see God as in a mirror dimly, but then we see Him face to face? Only you and I can answer those questions as we prepare once again to proclaim His death until He comes. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father,